Thank you for downloading the Crispy Sharp podcast, an audio companion to the film review and interview site that is found at www.crispysharp.co.uk. Hello. This week in London, it's the 22nd Raindance Film Festival, which celebrates popular and niche independent filmmaking. Although he's not on the festival programme this year, my guest this week is independent filmmaker Christopher Presswell, a cinematic jack-of-all-trades who has just written, produced, directed and edited his second film, Candlestick. I invited him along to the Royal Festival Hall on London's South Bank so we could discuss his thoughts on filmmaking. My first question was basically about his earliest influences and interests in cinema. Um, to be honest, I've sort of been quite lucky in that I've always known what I've wanted to do ever since about seven or eight years old. It's, um, I think, if you sort of trace it back to around, um, I think it was kind of 96, 97-ish when uh, the, the live-action 101 Dalmatians film was released. I never saw it, um, but I remember seeing this uh, this making-of thing on you know, one of the kind of bog-standard prepackaged making-ofs that's really everyone just talking about how brilliant the director is and how brilliant the film is and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think it was like the, the behind-the-scenes footage and seeing that this was something you could actually go out and do. And um, I think that led to me thinking, oh, I'd, I'd quite like to do that. And um, on the back of that, I sort of latched on to uh, wanting to become a director initially. And which, you know, writing came a little bit later, but I've always written short stories as well. Um, but the, the director aspect kind of came in through... Uh, basically, his, his name was always or her name was always first on the end credits and I th- sort of assumed that they were probably really important. I quite like the idea of being that person. So okay, <laughs> um, so did you go to any film school? Did you have any kind of formal education? In n- not exactly. I did a I did a basic editing course. Um, yeah, I, I didn't go to film school or university at all. I, I took a year out to try and earn some money to pay for a, a film school course and over the course of that year I started getting involved in various little short films and uh, all sorts of productions really. And... Um, over the course of that year, I realised that actually I could learn everything I would learn at film school, but without having the £25,000 of debt at the end of it. And um, so I spent a couple of years not really earning any money, but gaining lots of experience and making lots of connections. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm 26 years old and we've just finished my second feature film. Yeah, which that is, is amazing. You know, I, I don't think I would have done that if I'd gone down the film school route. I, I think I'd have spent three years making short films and then a few years struggling to find the money to make something. So do you have your own equipment? Have you built up a proper collection of gear? Yes. Um, well, given that I didn't end up going to uni, I sort of took the money that had been put aside by my loving parents to help cover some of those costs. And um, I sort of thought I could either get incredibly drunk, which was a viable option, uh, but instead I, I invested in some decent equipment. So I invested in a, an FX1 at the time, which was kind of close to the Z1, um, which is... Uh, Decent camera for when it was around, um, and like a decent edit suite as well. So, learnt how to use Final Cut, and um, mostly self-taught in most of those aspects. But um, all right. So before we talk about your film, which is coming out, mm-hmm. which is called Candlestick, um, I've, you are basically a writer, producer, director, and editor. Yes. Kind of in that order in development. Y- yes, I guess. Yeah. I suppose my question is, which one? You say you want to be a director first. Mm-hmm. Which one do you think is the hardest? And which one's the kind of hardest to learn whilst you're doing it if you haven't gone to any kind of okay. schools? I, I, I think they're all, I know it's it's a bit of a cop-out answer, I think they're all kind of as hard as each other. I think every aspect of it is really difficult. Um, you know, um, particularly, I guess, maybe editing if you've 
done everything else up until that point because I, I think it's good to have a bit of a distance and get some perspective when you're cutting a film together and if you've been there every single step of the way um, you can sort of lose sight on that a little bit I think I'm quite harsh on myself and I'm quite good at getting outside opinions on what works and what doesn't and um, in fact with Candlestick we completely recut the first scene on the basis of feedback that we received um, and it's I think it's good that I can like, that I'm able to take that advice from other people as well you can get quite uh, quite enveloped in your own opinions and um, and uh, start pursuing things that don't really work. Yeah. But um, so before we start talking about counseling, sorry. Um, so which of those four, if you didn't, if you could not do one of them, which one would you? If not I could not do, do one, uh, I would on the next project, I would like to not be the editor. Okay. I think I think I'm sort of at the point now where I've done it twice. I've edited two features, and I'm really proud of the work that I've done. But it's not quite where I want to go, and I think it'd be good to get an outside person maybe to. Oh god, that's that's me slagging myself off. No, <laughs> no, no. I, I, that's interesting because I, I would have assumed most people would choose to be either producer or director. It mm. seems like a hard thing to do both. Well, basically, producing producing wasn't something I ever really wanted to get into. Um, however, I've learned over the last couple of years that actually, if you're writing and directing, you're the person that's most invested in getting the thing made, and then to basically hand over the likelihood of it happening to someone else, um, certainly at this kind of scale and this level of the industry. Um, there's a good chance that nothing will come of it, and yeah, I've tried working with producers in the past, and it hasn't quite worked out. And in the end, I, yeah, I, I'm the one who's forced it through. So, again, I've started to become producer by default, really. <laughs> but, um, but it's worked. Yeah. So, um, okay. So I've seen your latest film, Candlestick. Mm -hmm. uh, can you just tell us quickly what it's about? It's basically about a dinner party from hell, more or less. It's um, it's uh, about a guy who tries to persuade his best friend that his wife may be cheating on him. But over the course of an evening things take a very dark and sinister turn and uh, it's a single location thriller um, with a sinister protagonist kind of like Rope and Dialing for Murder very much in that sort of vein and um, I, I like to think it's just quite a fun 90 minutes of narcissism really <laughs> <laughs> it is fun I did really I really enjoyed it um, and I, what I liked about it is um, I've got a review that I'm going to put on my site as soon as I'm allowed to basically <laughs> um, but it's quite an obvious homage like you say to these kind of kind of classic suspense films mm. um well i thought what, was, what else was interesting is it's kind of indirectly referencing rope which is one of my favorite hitchcock films mm. well definitely my favorite actually and it's kind of sorry indirectly referencing rope but directly referencing midsummer murders you know, i think there's two or maybe three references to midsummer yes. murders like in the in the dialogue and it just seems like you've kind of got this uh you know it's some highbrow lowbrow <laughs> thing going on I just wonder what you because it's quite obviously referential so yeah what were your well, thoughts about I that? think to be honest actually the, the Midsummer Murders references they're more just there as a playful aspect I mean a lot of the dialogue in the film is very playful it's not um, it has very kind of serious and dark elements to it but um, it's quite a light-hearted romp up until a certain point I think and um, tr truth is I didn't write the Midsummer Murders bits that's my co-writer Andrash so uh, you'd, you'd have to speak to him but he's Hungarian so it's it's interesting that he He's so up on uh, well. Appa apparently, it's really big over there, though. So well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, everyone knows Midsummer Murders. It's brilliant. Well, yeah. But, you know. but actually, what's particularly fun is um, there's a scene in which uh, the major Tom Knight, or played by Tom Knight, um, sort of sits there and kind of slags off Midsummer Murders, and purely unintentionally, he was actually in a couple of episodes <laughs> <laughs> back in 2011, I think. And yeah, we wrote that before we cast him, and yeah. So, but it's just it's kind of it's all come full circle. Well, I was going to say actually about the f you mentioned it's in one one location, mm. apart from one scene where they go out yes, outside. Yes, yeah. Um, 
So did you find a location, did you write with that location in mind? Uh, no, initially, well, basically, the way the film came together is a couple of years ago, I moved into a new flat with Andras, my co-writer, and he's a, a screenwriter. He's written a few films over in Hungary and has done some TV work as well. And um, we just sort of thought, well, if we're going to live together, we should probably try and write something. And so I got very, very drunk night after night and started hammering this, this silly little thing out. But um, I think that the main idea of... It sort of came from discussing the kind of films that we really liked, and you know, like Broken Dial M, and you know that that sort of fifties ethos that we particularly like, and um, really just kind of from a practical level, we sort of thought, well, if we could maybe write a film and then shoot it in our own flat, and it's not our own, but it wasn't our flat, but um, you know, just to make it really, really cheap and easy to do, and in the end, like we we, we found a much nicer flat to shoot it in, and. Um, it is a great flat. And yeah, it it's, it's astonishing. Film. It's it's about as good as we could got without building a set, basically. And obviously, building a set would have been a hell of a lot more expensive. Yeah. But um, but no, it's it's got a lot of character. It took about a month and a half of just searching and trawling through various like homestay websites and like vacation rental websites. And it's um, yeah, well we, we we really lucked out with it. And what about the casting? You've got quite a good quite a good cast mm -hmm. how long did that take how did you go about that because it's kind of like because it's set in one location it's kind of like a play mm. isn't yes it? so it's absolutely. kind of like i imagine it's kind of like casting for a, a theater kind of well, um, but, but then I, know, I mean you're still making a film it's you know you're still casting characters in the same way that you would cast a film rather than theater i think i mean i've never worked in theater so i, I can't really comment on how what the difference is between the two uh, the two formats or how it how you would choose actors for different things but um but certainly I think we were perhaps looking for a little bit of theatricality in the audition process. Um, I mean, we, we, we just held auditions over the course of a weekend. There's nothing particularly <laughs> exciting to say about that, really. It's, um, but we, we saw quite a few people, and I, th I think we really did luck out with our... Like, I mean, Andrew Fitch, who plays Jack, the, the lead, is you know, um, kind of blew us away in the audition in terms of... Um, his sheer kind of presence and yeah he's got, he's got some great reactions yes in that because yeah. it's quite a tense film there's a lot moments where he's not necessarily the focus of the shot or the scene but mm. his face in the background mm. is quite yeah. evil yes <laughs> quite frankly yeah um but no that actually there's uh, one particular sequence in it um what in the film which is towards the end so i won't specifically say what it is but um we we got a bit of coverage from another angle which d then didn't quite work in the edit uh, there's there's a pretty good I think four and a half minute tracking shot towards the end which features inside of Newmont and um, you know, we, we got some coverage just in case we had to cut between takes and one of the bits of coverage there's there's some real rage in his eyes and it's sort of a shame that we couldn't put it in but it just it, it didn't work and it sort of destroyed the majesty of this tracking shot that, that otherwise was really really good. I mean that, that tracking shot was for me the best shot of the film mm. really is yeah. that and again it just made me think of rope you mm. know the long takes is well, that what you were trying to um, sort of. I mean, in all honesty, um, you have quite a laid-back approach to directing on set, I think. And um, that just kind of came from me talking with Hayda Zaffer, our DOP, on the morning and saying, uh, you know, this this big scene, like six pages of dialogue that we've got to shoot today, why are we going to shooting it in one take? Yeah, all right. And that that was it. And um, well, that's <laughs> So, you know, it's but it, it looks as though it's it's been Absolutely, really well yeah, planned. That's, that is surprising because yeah. I thought that was... You know, going to be the one that you weren't looking forward to. Yes, you know? well, we weren't looking forward to shooting because we had no idea how the hell we were going to do it. But actually, I think like being in that space and being, and I think we shot it about four or five days in, so we'd we'd got a feel for 
how the space worked and how how it looked on screen and what have you. How long did it take you to film this? Uh, we shot it in ten days. Ten days, which is very very Quick. yes, um, and we couldn't have done it had it not been one location. Um, but what I think is particularly impressive is that all the scenes with the major, uh, who was in quite a lot of the film, we shot those in five days. So oh. and considering he's basically there more or less from about fifteen minutes in to the very last scene, um, you know it's it. Yeah, it was it was a very intense. <laughs> scene. We had one day where we shot thirteen and a half pages. I was listening to the schedule the that's other day, yeah, and it's, it's an awful lot. But <coughs> um, bear in mind that at the same time, generally when you shoot a script, it's about a page to a minute. Whereas the, the script for this was ninety six pages, I think, and it comes in at eighty three minutes. But it's so dialogue heavy, so um, I guess you can kind of <coughs> compensate for that a little bit. But did you write a storyboard for this film? No, we didn't storyboard it as such. We we had uh, a few diagrams and kind of technical diagrams of where the cameras were going to go. And I mean, I I'm not a massive fan of storyboarding in general. I think it's you sort of, there's a certain magic from being on the set and on the location, figuring it out on the day in terms of um, you know just sometimes you you see things that you didn't think of before, and um, you know it just things kind of come together more organically and they look right. So, I mean, yes, we had an idea of how we wanted it to look. We had a few shots that we particularly wanted to do, and generally the generally the tracking shots that are in there, um, with the exception of the, the huge one. But, yeah. but um, because uh, if I remember, a lot of it's n not a lot of it's handheld. It's quite a lot of it's on no, tripods. In so fact, it none of it's none of it's handheld at all. I yeah. Think. So from that reason, I just wonder whether it was all kind of mapped out before you started, or well, I think we had a vague idea. But I mean, ultimately, because it's all in one location as well, and yeah. it's. Um, a lot of it is dialogue, so you've got an idea of where where people are going to be sitting, how how to make that look good based on what you did three days ago. Yeah, and sure. And I think we tried to get a lot of differentiation in it. We didn't want it to look too stale all the way through the film, um, which is always a risk of shooting in one, one space. But I think we did quite a good job of making it look different over the course of each scene and uh, finding new places to put the camera. And L Without ruining any of the narrative, mm -hmm. not without giving away any of the plot, uh, obviously it's quite a just from what you said already, it's obviously quite a tense film, and mm. obviously I've seen it. Um, do you enjoy like tense fiction? Because there seems to be in the last couple of years, TV obviously, I mean in the last decade maybe, there's been a lot of kind of like awkward, tense comedy humor mm. type TV. Um, do you just is there something that you like about that kind of tension on screen? Because uh, the reason I ask is a lot of people I know, my girlfriend especially, just squirms when mm. she watches anything tense. She just looks away, can't can't, can't cope with it. Mm. Um, do you get a certain pleasure in making people do that as a filmmaker? Yeah, I, I think it's it's kind of it's the intention of it, I guess. Um, you know, I, I, I've always had a fondness for. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're looking at suspense, Hitchcock is the person to go to for um, a masterclass in like Brian De Palma as well, to an extent, I guess. But um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's it's fun to be able to play with people's emotions and get them to cower behind things if you can. It's okay. Is your microphone on? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yep. Sounds like it. Um, one of the really amazing things as well to mention about Candlestick is the soundtrack of mm. score. You, I mean, it says right at the beginning. In fact, two things. One, the credit sequence at the beginning, which is just great. And mm. the, uh, and as I was watching it, I was amazed when the, the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra popped up. Yeah. That's quite a... Um, yeah, so w we, we were very lucky to, to record with them. It's the same orchestra who did the scores for uh, District 9, Buried, Mulholland Drive. And um, we went out there to, uh, to their studio and... And you walk through this little doorway, and you see on on the walls all these posters of all these films that you you know and love that they've they've 
they played the score for. Amazing. And it's, it's really quite astonishing. Who um, actually wrote the score then? Uh, that was my uh, my composer Jonathan Jonathan Armandry, um, who I he wrote the score for Forget Paris as well. That was all digitally done. So that was that was more in line with our our budget. But um, but truth is, I you know I think the reason that well the, the real reason why so many scores are recorded over there is just it's a lot cheaper to do it. And um, we we looked into possibly doing it over here, but it's just the the costs are absolutely astronomical. We could never have afforded it. We actually worked out it cost us about two and a half percent of what it would have cost to do it here to do it in Prague. That's insane. Which you know, so it's not just saving a couple of hundred quid, you know, or like being a bit stingy. It's saving almost the entire cost of doing it and having a great holiday, I imagine. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, beer's a pound in Prague, <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Um, okay, and what about the uh, credit sequence? Sorry, the title sequence at the beginning. So uh, that's so. That's I mean, from the second you start seeing the film, it's just Hitchcock. Yes. Screams Hitchcock. Yeah. Purposefully, obviously. G- yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, that's that's obviously the intention. It's, um, yeah, it, it's uh, it kind of comes from that love of, of those sorts of title sequences, really, like the, the Sol Bass work. And um, you know, I'd say if it, of all the title sequences, it's probably kind of a, a mix and match between Psycho and North by Northwest in terms of the way that it's it's animated. Um, you know, it has its own identity as well, and it all it all does make sense actually. If you once you've seen the rest of the film, it does build up to something. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, again, it's just, I think they're a fun way of kicking off a film. Really, um, why would you just have a black screen with a bunch of title cards? No offense, Woody Allen, but um, you know, it's it's quite a it's just an exciting way of getting an audience straight in there. I think. Yeah, and especially if they're in in a cinema and yeah. it's a big screen. Absolutely, I mean, it, lo- it, lo- it looks fantastic on a big screen. Absolutely, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's all part of the charm, isn't it? And yeah, ultimately, yes, the, the whole thing is kind of a an homage to those Hitchcock films and um, yeah, and, and other films of that era as, as well. But I think you know, it's mainly the the Hitchcock elements that we were kind of aiming for. Um, you know, and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you try and do? Saying I'm trying not to say Nick everything, but, you know, um, but <laughs> emulate. Know, emulate. Yes, that's the word. Yes, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you try and emulate the, the, all the best elements? Yeah. 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 So we um, actually going back to the score as well. Um, you know, on on that point, um, we uh, we went very Bernard Hermany in terms of influences on it, and to the point that actually John had the idea of recording it with the same setup that they had for Psycho. So it's a 21-piece string section. And um, and exactly the same instrumentation, so you've got the, the same number of instruments for each section, and and it it just sounds great. It, yeah. Okay, so uh, I, w- I want to sort of talk about the industry as well, mm. rather than just the film. Mm. Um, so, but just l- sort of lastly, where will people be able to see Candlestick? Where is it going next? Well, our UK premiere is happening at the Aberdeen Film Festival on the eighth of October. We've also got a screening in Cork on the fourteenth of October, and there's possibilities of a few more festivals we can't quite announce just yet there's one more confirmed we can't announce until it's for another couple of weeks okay and what what do you what would you what's your dream for this film where would you like it to go after that well well domination basically <laughs> um, I, I don't see why this shouldn't be on the curriculum of every every English class <laughs> in the country and um, no it, I th- ultimately yeah we, we've made the film that's that's that was the ultimate dream of it and the ultimate goal of it and obviously we want people to see it we're trying to get it out there as far as we can and sp- uh, spread into as many countries as we possibly can um with there's a possibility of an, a, a u.s multi-platform release in april next year but that's that's still kind of up in the air at the moment it probably will happen but we're still figuring out the details uh we're, we're also hoping that 
uh, there'll be some kind of UK release next year. Um, with again, we're not quite sure what's happening with regards to that. Um, we're currently in the process of trying to obtain a sales agent who can facilitate that. Um, but it would be nice to have it released in my home country and you know the, the country where it is. It, it's such an ostensibly British film. Oh, it, yeah, it's so British. Uh, it perhaps not quite in the way that people would necessarily think of British film, or um, you know, we, we don't have we don't have Bill Nighy, and you know, as wonderful as he is. And oh, I think I think the, I think the cast are very very British, mm. like, and they're kind of acting up mm. to be. You know, the kind of very British, like you mentioned before, is a yeah. very kind of British dialogue. Well, I think it's very exaggerated dialogue as yeah. well. It's um, um, you know, it, it feels very almost a sense of the kind of nineteen. 50s brief encounter style dialogue in places, you know, the, the way that people or the way that the characters pronounce things and um, the lines that they deliver. So uh, it's, it's all a little bit anachronistic, but in a, in a brilliant way. Mm. So last weekend I was at the Encounters Short Film Festival mm -hmm. and uh, I, there was a QA with lots of filmmakers, and after they all kind of talked their bit, they handed it open to the uh, audience. And I asked the question, What would you rather have? dark room with 200 people enjoying your film mm. or a website with 10,000 people that watched your film what's the kind of bigger ambition for you what do you find more personally rewarding personally I think um, I, I'm a firm I, I love cinema and that's that's why I'm, I'm trying to get into this and that's why I'm getting into this I love cinema which is why I'm, I'm doing this with my life and um, yeah I, I think people seem to be kind of jumping on on it as there's been a few articles recently about the death of cinema and how everything's basically going to hell and it's it's not people will always want a theatrical experience of being in a room with other people and yes sometimes those people can be particularly annoying and rustle their crisp packets far too loudly but i think there's there's an inherent joy of sitting in a room with a couple hundred people and watching something together and actually again going back to the theatricality of candlestick it's kind of been designed almost really to be seen with an audience that you know it's um, yeah, it's not something that's that's got lots of explosions in it that would look a, a lot better on a big screen, although it does look better on a big screen. I think most films do, but um, you know, th there are a few sequences in it that are designed to be seen with other people around you, so you can kind of react in the same way. And it's it's kind of hard to explain what they are without really. It's, they're quite subtle, but yeah, it's just, I mean it's that's why I said before it's kind mm -hmm. of like a it's designed like a play. Yes, yeah. So you know, it'd be like it'd be it's best to watch it in a theatre. Yes, yeah. Um, so you've made a couple of short films before this, and you've also made a previous feature mm -hmm. film. This is your second feature film. Yes. By 26, can I say? It's not bad, is it? It's um, but your so again, just getting back to this festival I went to recently, just because it's in my mind, uh, mm. a, a lot of the kind of questions all throughout the festival was about, are short films an art form in themselves, or are they a stepping stone for people to then go and make a feature? What do you think, and what, how was it for you? I think they're both. I, I don't see why they can't be both. Um, you know that that's the great thing about filmmaking there's no one mold for everything like things can go off in different directions and do different things and if you're making a short film for the sake of making a short film that's 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 fantastic what did you personally um, do i what were your short films about as well um well my, my first short film was a thing called misconnections which was a pessimistic romantic comedy um it was about a, a guy who responds to all of the uh, the misconnections ads in the newspaper pretending to be the people that these girls had seen and um Kind of creepy now. I think. <laughs> 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 no, no. So, so, what happens to that? What is it available? Uh, it's it's, it's not kind of actually. There's a um, we we would put it up free on the internet, but there's <coughs> a few music rights oh which right. we we cleared for festival and theatrical runs and stuff, but um, but we didn't quite clear for online. So um, it may appear one day, okay. hopefully. 
That's your first. That, that was my first proper short film. Yeah, I mean, I, I made little things in college, and sure. you know, but that, that was the first one we actually dedicated some time to. And um, a year later, I made my first feature, which. Oh wow! So you made, you made so one short, then one, one feature. One short, then straight onto the feature. Yeah. Um, which kind of happened through um, partly luck. Uh, it's not really luck. I, I, I met. Uh, we, we took misconnections out to Cannes. I met um, someone out there who was particularly helpful in terms of putting the feature together. And uh, the feature is called Forget Paris. It's about a, 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 a couple who plan a romantic getaway to Paris for New Year, but their relationship falls apart before they go, and they decide to go anyway. And because we were shooting on a very, very minimal budget, we, we had to be out there shooting at midnight on New Year's Eve because um, we couldn't afford 250,000 extras. <laughs> and um, So we had a very kind of limited time frame to do it within. And it must be fun, though. It, it was... Or stressful fun. Yeah, it was stressful. <laughs> um, but no, it was fun. It was very rewarding, and we learned a hell of a lot from doing it. So... Um, but uh, but no, we, we were just fortunate we had the opportunity. I, I had access to all this equipment that I didn't think I was going to be able to use, and and um, timing-wise, everything was just coming together. We, we had one chance to go out there and do it, and I knew if I didn't do it, I would probably kick myself for the rest of my yeah. life. So, uh, so we went with it. And Can I just say, I don't think anything... I mean, filmmaking, when you say luck, I'm always amazed when mm. people can make a film. I think, well, it's, I think it's such an achievement. Nah, absolutely. Uh, you know, at, at the risk of sounding kind of arrogant or what have you, I, I, you know, I, I sort of use luck as a, a byword. I, you know, it sort of feels strange that this has happened to me and that I'm, do I'm actually doing this with my life. Um, but at the same time, I've put myself in the position where these fortunate things have have presented themselves. You know, I, I've gone out and I've supported the film at various festivals around around the world. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've seized the opportunities when they presented themselves rather than kind of ums and erd about it. And, um, you know, I've met so many people over the years who've wanted to be filmmakers but just never quite got around to making something. And I think that's that's the big difference. If you, if you want to make something, the difference is you have to actually make it. And... Um, in this day and age it's never really been easier to do that so there's kind of no excuse to not at least try and put something together and set a start date and suddenly everything seems to come together yeah. uh, it's just having the confidence to go ahead and do it so and what's your view on like film festivals in general do you go to many as a as a punter or do you um to, to be honest uh, as a punter not really because i tend to go to quite a few as a filmmaker so it's um um yeah if, if i've got a friend's film that's screening in in one then yes i'll, I'll happily pay along uh, to go along and see something um this year i mean they, we've got quite a few festivals coming up in terms of what's you know where we're screening so that's probably going to be my main travel um situation with that um I, I go to berlin and Cannes most years uh, but that's mainly for the film market rather than the uh, to see any films um ultimately if you're if you're in the same location where the entire world's film industry is for two weeks it's a bit foolish to sit in a dark room and watch something yeah. but I mean, i'll always try and see at least one thing <laughs> while i'm out there so but yeah no i i, I think they're, they're great i i i think they are truly wonderful things i think they're, they're a good way of getting your films out there that it can be a bit tough like trying to get them into the festivals which i know from first-hand experience and but um most of them are very supportive of you know, that's that's the whole reason they exist. They want to show interesting stuff, and if you make the interesting stuff, they will show it. So yeah. it's I'm I'm not sure I can back this up with statistics or facts. Mm. Maybe I could tweet them later. Mm. But it seems like conventional wisdom would suggest that people are going to the cinema less and mm. going to film festivals more. Would you agree with that? I I think so, probably. Yeah. I mean, I think it's coming down to the whole event cinema thing, really, isn't it? It's um, yeah, um, like what Picture House do with their their 
what the National Theatre lights. I think it's mainly picture houses, though. I know that that's a big angle for for them. Um, but um, yeah, it it's stuff that's not. It's kind of against the norm, and where it's only showing once or twice, it gets people in to see it, and yeah, it makes an event of it. And film festivals are an event, uh, ostensibly an event. Um, whereas yeah, anything that's on at thirty cinemas in London five six times a day, yeah, there's no there's no sense of occasion with it. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah, and no, I, I think y- you're probably right. Again, I, I don't have the stats to back it up either. But <laughs> it would be nice if if it's true, even though it does signalise the the death <laughs> of the industry. But well, okay, and uh, so kind of last question maybe. Um, mm. Do you have a Netflix account or anything like that? Yes, to no, necessarily I big up Netflix. I keep talking about them, but mm. you know they're kind of synonymous with that yeah. whole phenomenon. No, I, I have a generic um, streaming account with with a company that starts with N. Yes, right. um, and, and how often do you watch films? Very often to take a risk on films. Kind of a good question. I, I think I will say I think through Netflix I've watched a few bits and pieces that I wouldn't necessarily watch otherwise. Um, but actually, the very first thing I watched on Netflix when I got my account a few years ago was uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which I'd always sort of dismissed, but it kind of popped up and I heard lots of good things about. Oh, all right, I'll give it a go, and I thought it was absolutely yeah, amazing. Brilliant. You know, yeah, yeah, it's uh, really, really joyous and wonderful. Um, <laughs> but, but then that, I know that's kind of more kind of big mainstream. <laughs> thing. I, you know, I've sort of just checked out. Uh, the reason I ask is, you know, because uh, you know, you are a small filmmaker. Yeah. Well, not you're an independent filmmaker. Yeah. So people are going to have to take a risk to find your film. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Oh no, you know, just being honest. So how often do you, you know, you kind of have to practice what you preach? Do you do you go and see independent films as much as you'd like? Um, I try to. Yeah. Um, again, problem is in terms of going to see. I, mean, I, I like seeing films in the cinema primarily. That's that's where I go and see things and. Uh, the truth is, anything that gets a theatrical release has probably got a fair bit of money behind it and a fair bit of PR, so it's kind of hard to really see truly independent fare. I don't think there really is that much of a market for it over here. So, um, no, it's not in the cinema anyway. N- no, certainly not in the cinema. And I mean, even on VOD, I th- unless it's part of a streaming platform like Netflix where you don't have to pay to see it, I think it never will necessarily. But then that's that's kind of the whole point of independent filmmaking. I think it's you, know, you, you try and make something to break out, but at the same time, it's where it's not part of the mainstream you're not going to find a mainstream audience for it you're not going to get 30 million people wanting to watch something that's ostensibly quite a small film um so um but no i, mean, I like to think i do i do try and take risks on what i see um, i wasn't trying to tell you what i was listening no 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 <laughs> <laughs> final question mm-hmm. if you were trying to break out what would be your ultimate genre to work in what would be your ultimate place to be how would you um to be honest i've always just been very happy with the idea of being able to make films and get by doing it but not have to get a proper job basically <laughs> you know um i mean this this is what i love doing this is what i want to do with my life and um as long as i'm i, I mean I, I would like probably to remain in relatively small smaller films so um you know kind of the way that shane meadows has done it where you know he's one of the finest filmmakers we have in this country and yeah he's barely left the midlands let alone gone to hollywood <laughs> so um, that's not to say I wouldn't want to do a, a big Hollywood film if the opportunity came. Um, you know, Star Wars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, it's it. I th- I, I'm just I'm just happy doing what I'm doing, really. And while I'm getting by, that's that's good. I think. Well, I'm glad that Chris is happy because Hamlet is a really fun film and well worth checking out if you can find it, especially at the cinema. For more information, then head to candlestickfilm.com and also, as always, please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and check out crispysharp.co.uk for lots of reviews of the films that I'm watching at Raindance. See you next week.